The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. And our subject this evening is Living in Wisdom. This is another part of our study of sanctification. As we live for Christ and we increase our knowledge of Him through His Word, we also increase the ability we have to make right decisions. Now, in this text, the Apostle Paul explains the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in a person who is a believer, the person that knows or has the mind of Christ. Now, let's look at our text here, beginning in verse number 5 of Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, in these verses, Paul shows us a difference, a, con a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And there is a, a definite difference in the thinking of a person that's, whose mind has been renewed by regeneration uh, as opposed to one who remains in the natural state. Now, what we're talking about here is someone who has been born twice, one who has the natural birth, of course, that's pretty much a given, the other is the supernatural birth, and the person that has both of those, that supernatural birth, has a different way of living, a different thought process than one who just has the one birth of the natural man. Jesus explained the necessity of the new birth in uh, the book of John when he was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And various forms of meaning... Uh, to that passage, to what Jesus said. But one of those meanings assuredly is this, that without being born again, and that means simply to have spiritual eyes open for understanding, then a person simply does not have insight into uh, matters concerning the soul's salvation. Now elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, and that means that those who have only the one birth, the natural birth, can't understand the Spirit. In this text, the Apostle Paul said the natural man is carnal. He cannot please God. In the depravity of the human heart with his human nature, he can only go in one way, and that is the way of spiritual death. But the spiritual man is different. He's not of the flesh. He doesn't mind the things of the flesh, as Paul says. And with that new mind, he looks upon the things of God with a different attitude, with a different desire, and that desire is to do what God would have him to do. And so that new outlook is a complete turnaround from what the person was before 
He sees God in a different way than he saw him before, and now he has that different desire or to live in a different way. Uh, now, Paul would maintain that the change in a person's life is so radical, that change in a person who is saved is so radical that the change cannot fail to manifest itself. Now, it might not shout as loudly as it should at times, but it will not fail to manifest itself. There's a definite, noticeable change in a person who is born of the Spirit of God. If that change isn't there, what he says in verse number 9 is that that person is not of God. He doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, and so he doesn't belong to Christ. And so this point is, is driven home in relation to our study of sanctification, and the point is that a Christian must be in the sanctifying process. And if he's not in that sanctifying process, then he doesn't belong to God. And so what the Spirit encourages us, the Word of God encourages us, to check up on that process all of the time, to see where we are in that process so that we don't fail of the grace of God. Well, we've learned that regeneration has such an effect on the mind that the attitude is switched. We begin to think the way that God thinks before we would never try to live righteously. That's foreign to us. Uh, before we're regenerated, that's not our way of life. But when we come to know Christ, it is a different life that we live. And in this new life, we want to do what Christ asks. Uh, we want to be approved as workmen that won't be ashamed at the appearing of Christ. And so that means we have to abandon old attitudes, abandon the old things that we used to do and embrace new things. And decisions have to be made about things that are harmful to us as God's people and things that will enhance the way that we walk according to God's Word. So each good decision uh, leads us to another one. I mean, this is a process, as I said. It's not a, it's not a finished act when you get saved. You, you don't automatically have everything right at the moment that you get saved. It's a continuous thing. And so you can actually track that process by looking at one decision to the next decision you see how those are good, and that shows that you're growing in the Lord. So every good decision makes the next one easier. But conversely, when you string together a lot of bad decisions, then you end up out of fellowship with the Lord. And quite frankly, for a Christian, that makes you miserable every day. You can't be a Christian living outside the will of God and not be miserable. So living in wisdom is, uh, is the daily act of discernment. It's to be faced with choices, both good and bad ones, and knowing how... Uh, those choices are going to affect you. Some choices are no-brainers. But a lot of Christians make choices as if they have no brains. There's no doubt about that. So we ought not to think that in this process of learning and making good decisions and deciding these things, that in that process, the maturing of the faith, that sometimes we're going to run across some very hard choices. Sometimes we just don't know which way to go. We don't see clearly and so what I've given you in, in, uh, in the last lesson, and we'll look at again tonight, is some tests or some questions about which way we should go. Now, in the last lesson, I did ask you some questions that will help you to decide what you should do. And these are questions that are about moral choices. Although when we get into the next part, there are a few of these things that you might be able to apply to your doctrinal choices. And that will be the next thing that we talk about, uh, wisdom in doctrinal choices. That's the second part. But we're going to look again at these five questions tonight, and then I'm going to add a sixth one uh, that we didn't have time to talk about last time, and then we'll be ready to move on to speak just a little bit this evening in the end on to the discernment of doctrinal issues. So let's look at the questions once again, just briefly run over these first five. Question number one, 
is, is it clearly condemned in the Bible? Is the thing that you want to do something that is named as a sin in the list of sins that you find in the Bible? Now, you can go down the, the list of the Ten Commandments. You could look there, and of course, there are things there that you ought not to do. So you could look at the Ten Commandments. Can you find what you want to do there? Or could you go to one of the lists that the Apostle Paul gives in the Word, and can you find the thing that you want in that list? And if you see it there, then you know it's clearly condemned. There's no question about that. That is a no-brainer issue. You don't mess around with that. You don't do it. You stay away from it. So you find out things that are clearly condemned, and the way that you do that, you do have to read the Bible. You have to have some knowledge of Scripture so you'll find out that Christians that don't spend time in the Bible have a lot harder time trying to figure out what's good and bad and what they shouldn't do. There are a lot of things that are in those lists that you'll just look at and you'll say, all right, there God says it, so that means we ought not to do it. And as you read the Bible more, the Spirit opens up the way of truth to you. Second question we asked, is it similar to things that are condemned in the Bible? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul listed several sins, and then he said, don't do these things or things that are like them. And so there are things that you might want to do that are like things that are contained in those lists. They may not be spelled out exactly, but they're like the things that are on the list. And so what you need to know how to do is to connect the dots between things that aren't there, but things that are like the things that are there. And so I guess you would say you need some sanctified common sense. Now, you can't take an issue and say, for instance, like alcohol, you can't say no to alcohol, then turn around and say it's okay to say okay to drugs. You can't put those two things together. Those are similar things. You ought to be able to tell if one's wrong, the other one's wrong. You can't say that, well, the Bible says to dress modestly, and so as a woman you might be asking a question, well, should I really put on this miniskirt that I want to wear? Do I want to put on something that shows my body? Well, that's like something that's in the list. We're supposed to, to dress modestly. So putting those kinds of things together aren't really all that difficult. The difficulty is in the stubborn mind that we have, that we just don't want to give up some of the things that we do, and so we just play dumb like we don't know. We can't connect the dots, we say, when actually we can. We just don't want to know. We don't even want to ask the question. Now, thirdly, does it hurt your conscience? Every born-again believer has a new sanctified conscience that is sensitive to sin. Now, before salvation, your conscience is defiled. It's bound by your inherent depravity. Most things that you did before you got saved really uh, didn't bother you then. You didn't really think too much about them. Uh, the conscience wouldn't try to stop you because your conscience was trained according to your evil nature. So it's not going to look on the things of God and say, you know, this is going to be against God. You just don't think that way. But when you get saved, your outlook changes. Things that were okay, you begin to feel uncomfortable with. Uh, you recognize there's something wrong with that, and so you want to stay away from it. It's strangely uncomfortable. And that uneasiness that you feel is that new conscience that God has put in you, and it pricks you, and when it does, you better stop. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, when, I was, when I was young, my dad never allowed us to have a deck of cards in the house. I think that maybe I was a teenager um, before I ever touched a deck of cards. And I mean, we didn't have a deck of rook cards in our house. When I was born, my dad uh, had been saved for less than four years. He was 25 years old when he got saved. And 
And so his, his salvation at the time that I was born and growing up it was still a very recent memory to him, what it was like before he was saved. And it just so happens that playing cards was one of his regular pastimes. Now, back in the 1940s, there wasn't as much to do on the farm. And so uh, what folks would often do is play cards. At least that's what he and his friends did. And my dad never liked alcohol, so that wasn't an issue. He didn't drink. And card parties to him, that wasn't a time to have a drunk fest. But playing cards is something that reminded him of the way that he lived before. And what he didn't want to do was to go back to the old things that he did before. I mean, that caused him to think about all those wasted years of his life before he came to know Christ. And so he just translated that into, let's just don't have a deck of cards in the house. Because that was something that wounded his conscience. That was a conviction of his. Now, this is what the conscience will do to you. Sometimes you stay away from things that aren't really wrong in themselves. But the Bible says if that's something that hurts your conscience then it becomes a sin to you. It might not be wrong in itself, but becomes a sin to you if it bothers your conscience to do it. So that was something that bothered him because that's the way he lived his whole life. So he wanted to stay completely away from that. Now think about this one because this one's a little bit harder for you. You might find out that you're doing something that hurts someone else's conscience. It's not really bothering you, but it becomes a stumbling block in the way of another Christian. And you doing that wounds them did you know the Bible also says that even though that thing might not be wrong, that you stay away from that too? Because you don't want to hurt another Christian. So these kinds of decisions are sometimes hard for us, but this is the very kind of thing that we learn as we become better followers of Christ. We learn how to act, how to live, and what God wants us to do. So God changes that depraved conscience that we have, and you can see by these examples that the conscience sometimes is very sensitive to things, things that you wouldn't expect that would bother you, may indeed bother you, after you become a Christian. And so you have a conscience then that is trained by devotion to Christ. There's a drive to please Him. And if you've got a conscience like that, that's a conscience that's reliable. And when it tells you not to do something, then you don't do it. Conscience says no, don't do it. Fourth question to ask, is what do mature Christians say about it? Now, sometimes you still have trouble deciding. Maybe, maybe you haven't been a Christian for very long. Maybe you're facing something that's completely new to you. You haven't really thought about it before. You don't know what to do. Uh, you can't find it in the Bible, uh, not clearly enough to your satisfaction. Maybe your conscience is not well-trained enough to deal with it. So what else can you do? Well, Ecclesiastes says... There is nothing new under the sun. So it's highly likely that there is a seasoned Christian, somebody who's been in the church for a long time, who's faced your problem before. And if not your particular problem, maybe he knows someone who has, or someone very, something very similar to that, and he's seen how that thing was handled, and he knows what to do about it. He knows what the outcome is. Now, I, I've been a Christian for... 55 years now, most of that time, uh, at least in, in my adult life, which has been most of that time of 55 years, uh, I have been right next to the inner circle of the church almost all of that time. Always been involved in the central work that the church is going on. And so I have seen a lot of things. But I haven't seen everything. When I came to California, I learned I haven't seen everything but I learned that the new things that I've seen are a lot like the old things that I've seen. 
And so I could rely on that experience to tell me, no, that's something that needs to be preached about, something that you need to talk about. And I could even go back to question number two and see that new things are like old things, and I know to stay away from those things. So I can tell you, there probably is an old church member that you can go to, and they have faced your problem, something very similar to that, and they've handled it, maybe rightly or wrongly, but at least they know what will happen according to what choice that you're going to make about it. So what you need to do is go talk to those people because mature Christians can help you. They've graduated from the school of hard knocks. They know what to do. So you need to make sure that you check out that resource because there's some very good information that can come from older members that are in the church. You know, this is one of the things about, uh, about Larry, Larry Jefferson. You know, I really appreciated the, the insight that he had into things, and he was a valuable help to me because we grew up almost alike. We both grew up in church, and, and we'd both seen things, and, and uh, you know, he had some good advice that you could talk to him about. Old men are like that. Old women are like that. And so what you do, you go find somebody like that and you talk to them and you can almost guarantee that the information is going to be good. However, there is one little caveat to that and that is not all old people have good things to say because there are some Christians that have been saved for a long, long time and they've never been good testimonies. I mean, for their entire life, they never lived a good Christian life. So you don't want to go to somebody like that. You want to go to somebody who's had a hard time, been through difficult issues, and they stayed in there. And they were faithful to the church, and they served the Lord, and nothing could stop them from serving the Lord. That's the person that you go to to ask about things. So don't, don't lose that resource. Think about those who are mature Christians and ask them. Now, question number five does it hinder your influence? Will your activity be a good activity or will it be a bad one? Do you, do, you, uh, do you think that your church would be well off if everybody did what you want to do? Would that make the church a better place? Will that glorify God if everybody chose to do the same thing that you're about to do? Now, I've got a little bit of a story to tell you here. Um, I hope Bob and Bronwyn won't mind if I tell this story. Uh, I think they'll appreciate it, though. When they first came here, they were seasoned ticket holders of the Oakland Raiders. Now, now, well, actually, being, being, a, being a fan of the Oakland Raiders does not determine your salvation. Now, it, it makes it highly suspect, but uh, it won't necessarily keep you from being saved. But in any case, uh, Bob and Brom were seasoned ticket holders of the Raiders, and you could count on this, that when... when uh, uh, the season came around, Bob and Brian would, would not be here at church on Sunday because they would go to the home games of the Oakland Raiders. Well, after they'd been members of the church for a while, they got convicted about not being in church on Sunday. So they decided they wanted to stay and worship the Lord on his day, let the Oakland Raiders make their own blood sacrifices, however they do that, and, and then they would be here at church. And I don't know all of the reasoning that they used to do that, um, I don't know why they, well, I know some of the things they probably thought about, but if you were going to ask me, what do you think about that, and what would you do in a situation like that? Well, the first thing that I would think about, what if the whole church decided that they were going to go to a Raiders game on Sunday? My first thought was, we need to get a lot of people saved, of course, get them turned around and changed, and if they were going to see some other team, maybe not so much, but the, yeah, that's a different thing. But, but what if the whole church decided that they were going to go to a Raiders game on Sunday. 
Uh, and then I thought, you know, most of you would be very unhappy if I called in on a Sunday morning and I said, sorry, I'm, I just can't be there today. The, the grandkids have a soccer game that I need to go to. Well, the first thing that you would say, well, that preacher is lying because there's no way he's going to be caught dead at a soccer game at any day of the week, much less a Sunday, because I'm not going to soccer games. So, uh, but, but if I say, well, let's just have everybody in the church, let's just all take off and let's go to a soccer game, I hope that you would be very upset about that, that that would bother you to have everybody in the church take off on the Lord's Day and do something like that. So I, I think about this and how many things could be decided correctly if we use the three musketeer rule. All for one and all for one, all for one and one for all. What if we just said that? What's good for one of us is good for all of us. And if we could make decisions like that, then I think it would show up our bad testimonies pretty easily. So how do you influence others? I also think about things like this. I'm, my wife is here tonight. I'm glad that she's able to be here. Uh, she's been very, very sick. And uh, it pains me to see the struggles that she goes through. And lots of times when she's here at church, uh, she, she comes and she's feeling bad. You ask her how she's feeling and she'll say, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. She's not okay. She's, she's usually feeling very bad. Many days uh, at home, she forces herself to get out of the house, that she has to go do something. I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. So if she decides to go to the grocery store or something, it makes her miserable to do that. And then on Sundays, I, you know, I come to church and lots of times she can't make it, so I, I, I leave her at home. And sometimes I think, you know, I wish I could stay home maybe to help her out. Maybe she needs something to take care of her. I don't know if her blood sugar is going to go down. She can't get out of bed to go get something. So that bothers me uh, to have to do that. But most of, she's able to handle that, and so uh, she can do a few hours without me here. But I wonder about that, and I wonder about how sick she is. And then I take a look at and see what some parents do, that when the baby has a sniffle, there's just no way they can possibly leave the house, and both parents have to stay home to pull Kleenexes out of the box to give to that little kid. Now, you think about things like this. What kind of an influence are you? You're going to be an influence whether you want to be or not. And you could very well end up being that Christian that old codger Christian that nobody ever goes to to ask anything because you never took care to show a, a good testimony, a good Christian life, and really make the effort to be at church when you ought to be here, to try your hardest to be here no matter what happens. And then again, you know, I, uh, probably on Saturday, th this will come to my mind, I'm sure, uh, about how many times that Larry was here with all the sicknesses and how hard it was for him to come and whenever he could be here, he would come. And you think about Christians who just don't want to put in that effort. And I'm telling you, you'll end up being the type of person, the type of church member that nobody will ever come to and ask for advice, ask for help, because you never showed them anything. So it's good to have those Christians that can do that. But we need to think about what kind of influence that we are. Hebrews says in the 11th chapter that there were some of God's saints that were sawn in two. I think the reference there is probably to Isaiah, that great prophet of God who was able to see into the throne room of God. And the scripture says that he was sawn in two. And you think about Christians who can't make it to church because they cut their toenails too close. And this wonder, what's wrong with people? 
So think about what a good testimony that you are. Are you a good one? Are you a bad one? Don't give people the opportunity to criticize. Don't hand them the bullets to shoot you with. They're going to criticize you enough without that, so you don't need to hand them all the ammunition that they need. And don't be the type of person that says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody thinks. No, you ought to care what everybody thinks. That's what a mature Christian does. I care what everybody thinks. I care if you agree with me. I care if you don't agree with me. Because I want you to be right. I want you to agree. You know, I was listening to one of my dad's sermons the other day. I was walking up the hill. And he says, you don't have to be smart to disagree with me. He said, any fool can do that. So he just had a, a way of just getting to the point. Well, one more of these questions. Uh, I didn't get to this one the last time. What else will help you to determine what you ought to do? Well, ask this question. Is it poor stewardship? Is it poor stewardship? Now, you, you might not have thought of this one, but there is a relationship between good stewardship and proper discernment. Now, of course, we can be good stewards about, about our time and about our money and about our bodies. Well, how does that relate to good and evil? Well, some of this is very obvious because you can spend time doing bad things. You can spend money on bad things. Down the street from us, there's a, a small grocery store that I stop into from time to time when I don't want to drive always Safeway. Prices are exorbitant, but uh, to save me the trip all the way there, I'll stop into this store. And almost invariably what happens is that every time I go in there, there is some numbskull who just got his paycheck and can't wait to spend it on beer at the highest price possible, spend money on beer and buying lottery tickets. And so I've got to stand behind this nut there at the, at the cash register who doesn't have, you know, he can't decide which ticket that he wants, so he stands there scratching his head instead of the car, card, and he can't figure out which card that he wants, so finally he gets that, instead of moving out of the way so I can get my stuff, he's got to stand there in front of the register and scratch the thing off. Well, you can make bad decisions like that. You can spend your money in the bad way. You can buy beer and do all those things, buy lottery tickets, scratch them off and find out you didn't win anything as usual, but just keep on buying them. And that's not hard for us to decide. Well, that's bad stewardship. That's evil. We know we ought not to do that. Uh, those aren't hard decisions to make. But there are decisions about things that we can do that are good things, and they... Uh, by themselves are, are good things. And we can spend time and energy on those things. But then they turn into things that ruin our service to the Lord. They're good things, and we keep doing these good things. We can spend time on bad things. But we can also spend time and money on good things that end up taking us out of the service of the Lord. So can you do good things with your, with your time? Yes, you can. Can you do good things with your money? Of course you can. Can you do good things with your body? Yes, you can. And we're to be wise stewards of those. But as I say, you can flip that thing around and you can use those good things to take you out of the Lord's service. So here, here are some things that you might think about. I mean, I've got a, just a passel of examples for this. Um, is it good for kids to be involved in sports? Well, yeah, that's a good thing. It's, that's a healthy thing. Uh, it teaches teamwork. It teaches social school skills, rather. Is it a good thing if it takes them out of church? Now, I read an article a few weeks ago about a parent, a Christian parent, 
who did things like this and finally just came to the decision and said, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to take my kids away from church to let them go play sports. A good thing turns into a bad thing and they said, it's just not worth it because what I've done, I've taught my kids that a ball game is just as good as being at church or it's an acceptable compromise. We can do that. Is it a good thing to earn a lot of money for the security of your family? Well, yeah, that's a good thing. Is it a good thing if you take a job that takes you out of the Lord's service? Well, no, that's not a good thing. You'd be better off, depending on the Lord, to clothe you like he does the lilies of the field than to take a job that's going to just push you out of service to the Lord. Is it a good thing to have enough money to retire and go traveling and visiting any time that you want? Well, that's great. But if those kinds of things take you out of regular service to the Lord so that you are gone so much from church that you can't even hold down a job in the church to do some kind of service here, that's a bad thing. The good thing of being wealthy or whatever can turn into a very bad thing if, you don't, if, you, if, if you're doing things that take you out of serving the Lord. It's poor stewardship. That's a bad testimony. You don't want to forget that example that I gave you just a moment ago that you need to be a Christian that younger, inexperienced Christians can go to and ask for help, and, and you've set a good example for them. Are you here when you need to be here? Good things can turn into bad things. And then let me say this. If your excuse is, oh, oh well, you know, it's okay if I do those things because when I'm not here, I, I go to church wherever I am. Well, how does that help your church here? How does that help the body of Christ that you committed to when you became a member here? And that we've, we've got to do the work that we have in this church. And so the good thing turns into a bad thing. You know, some of you have wondered about me losing weight, and I get this question regularly. I don't know how many times I got this question. Are you sick? I'm sorry if I look sick. Uh, I'm not really sick. I did get a compliment a while ago. So, uh, who was that? Uh, was it Bronwyn? Yeah, she, the, she implied. She did, she, I, I'm putting words in her mouth, but she certainly did imply that I look much younger. Other people think that I look terribly sick. Well, I'm not sick, but what I've done is I've started exercising, and that's a good thing because it uh, you know, helps me with some of the things that ail me. But I found out that the good thing of exercise can turn into a bad thing, and that is it can take away too much of my study mind, uh, study time. rather. So what I decided to do was to change my, my schedule so I'd get up two hours earlier in the morning so that by 3 o'clock in the afternoon I've got a 10-hour day in already and then I can go exercise. And then when I go, I can go up on the mountain and I can use that time as I'm walking. Lots of times I use that to pray. And uh, fortunately, it's not like texting when you walk because I can pray and keep my eyes open and see where I'm going. And uh, so uh, I, I'm praying or doing something like that. I go over sermons in my mind, and sometimes I develop points for sermons while I'm, while I'm walking up there. So the good thing can stay good if you use it in the right way. Don't let it turn into a bad thing. You don't really want to be a bad steward of God's time. Now, here's another one for you. Is it good to have a nice car? Yeah, it's good to have a nice car. There are advantages to that. You don't break down. It's a good thing to have a nice new car. I mean, just think how good you look sporting around town. Look fine in your car. And you feel good about your car. You know, that's, that's a good thing. But is it a good thing to take God's money to buy it? No, that's not a good thing. 
So a good thing turns into a bad thing. And then is it good to take a vacation? Yeah, it's good to take a vacation. I think it's good for all of us to, at some time or another, take some time off. I found out that uh, about every quarter, I have to take some time off because with, with the pressures and things like that, I really, sometimes I feel like my mind's going to explode. And you don't have to worry about the time I take off because I double up the workload before and after so everything gets done. But I've got to have that time off. But I know that we have some people that comes around vacation time, they're ready to go. And people will say, you know, you know what I can't do? I, I, I just can't afford to tithe. I just can't afford to tithe. And then when vacation time comes, suddenly, suddenly money appears from somewhere and they take a vacation. Well, where did you get the money to take a vacation? Anybody want to guess where the money comes from? If you haven't tithed and you take a vacation, where does your money come from? You took God's money, right? Is it a good thing to take God's money? No, that is poor stewardship. And so the good thing of taking a vacation turns into a bad thing if you're using God's money to do it. So all of, this is all about poor stewardship. Is it good stewardship? Is it bad stewardship? These are just practical questions that you need to ask for practical situations. So we need to think of these things. Priorities have to be set. We must keep these things in mind and not let uh, evil take over and prevent us from doing God's work. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, we spent most of our time here in review tonight, and I'm sorry for going back over all that, but I, I did think that it was important to re-emphasize some of these things. And so in just this little bit of time that we have left, I want to introduce you to another part of the study, and this is another area of biblical discernment. There are choices that we make about morality, and we're ready to leave that part and move on to decisions that have to be made about doctrine. Uh, that is, discernment about matters of the faith. Now, so, some of these things are very serious matters. Some of them turn out to be differences between heaven and hell, depending on what doctrines that you believe. Some of them don't actually rise to that level, and we'll talk some about that too. And uh, many of you have learned that from listening, you know, listening to me week after week, and uh, you've learned this, that the more that you know about doctrine and understand and get doctrine right, the better that you're going to be in interpreting all parts of the Bible. I mean, just, just getting the doctrine down and understanding how everything fits together helps you to, to get a better picture of what's going on in the entire Bible. And so when you, when you hear me preach, you're faced with a decision. Am I right or am I wrong? Am I telling you the truth about it? Is it what God said or it's a, what, is it what I said? And you really do need to weigh that very carefully. You, you need to make a decision about what you're going to believe. But what I don't want you to do is make decisions that are based upon a certain system that you've grown up in. Somebody's taught you something. You make your choices just purely based upon what someone told you was the truth. And you never really took time to look into the Scriptures to find out if that thing is right. And so I never want you to believe anything that I've said just because I say it. I want you to look at the Scriptures and... Is there something there to back up that doctrine in the Scriptures? Now, I don't intend this to be a prideful statement, but I, I do appreciate it very much when we have visitors come to church. And because of our visible place that we have here on the corner, uh, we get lots of visitors from out of town. We're easy to find. And so they come into church here, and I, I appreciate it when there are some of them that leave and they say, you know, 
this is something different than we've heard before. And what they mainly mean is you're using Scripture. You're explaining what you're teaching by using the Scriptures, and we just don't hear very much of that. And so they appreciate hearing what the Bible says about it then, rather than just what the preacher has to say about it. So that's the way I want you to evaluate things. Let, let's look at the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Well, I, I've run into this uh, a few times on visitation, that people in our neighborhood, uh, at least in the past, have thought that this church is a crazy place. I mean, really, they, they think there's, there's something wrong here. I mean, there's, well, you know, it was deeply into the fundamentalist ideas at one time, and, and people just thought, well, you know, that's just a strange place there. And I don't know how much things have changed since I became the pastor. I mean, people may still think that we're crazy. I know uh, when I'm preaching, I often see people get up and leave <laughs> while I'm preaching the message. Uh, and I think that it's because some people uh, expect something very much different when they come here to our church. Uh, somebody stole our banner that was outside that, that advertises this series. And um, I suppose that that guy that was uh, on that sign with his hand raised, that some hands raised that some people thought, well, that must be what goes on in there. So they come in here and they expect, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this next week or whenever it is. And uh, maybe they come in expecting, well, that must be a charismatic church because that, that is a sign sometimes of charismatic churches. So maybe that's a charismatic church and they expect they're going to come in and they find they, they want to see somebody jumping over pews, hopping up and down and all those kinds of things. They find out that's not what we do here. So we're strangely quiet around here. I mean, it's hard to get an amen out of you sometimes. And that might be because I don't say anything right to get an amen, but I don't know. But we're, we're pretty quiet around here. We don't make a whole lot of noise. Uh, so people come in and see a quiet church and they think, well, that's a dead church. Well, that doesn't mean we're dead. We just, we're just not charismatic. A few weeks ago, there was a lady sitting right over here by the curtain. And she stayed long enough for me to say that Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons are going to hell. And I guess that was enough. So she got up and left. And, uh, but that's, that's the things that you're faced with. Jorge told me about uh, a fellow that attended church here a few times, and he was related to some of the members of the church. And he said, you know, your pastor, he just talks too much about hell. Jorge's got the record of that. He just talks too much about hell. And this man said, well, even though I know that hell is taught in the Bible, I had hoped that after a few thousand years that God had changed his mind. So you're faced with those kinds of things. I mean, is it good doctrine? Is it bad doctrine? How do, make, how do you make up your mind about that? People just don't seem to understand those things. Is it truth or is it not the truth? And that's what you have to do. You have to discern between truth and error, good doctrine and bad doctrine. I've told you about the doctrinal questionnaire that we have for missionaries. I often, I mean, this is a regular thing. I get calls, emails, letters from prospective missionaries that want to come here and present their work. And the place that we always start is with that missionary questionnaire. And usually that's the place we stop. Because some of them don't even bother to fill out the questionnaire. They look at it and they don't know what they're doing. They don't even know how to answer it. Uh, they, they don't know uh, some of the questions that are on there. They leave questions blank. Sometimes they have no idea what we would be driving at when we ask a particular question. And all of those things are there to determine a doctrinal position so we can see where this missionary is, what's he going to teach. And if he can't pass the muster of that doctrinal questionnaire, he doesn't get in the door here. And quite frankly, this is why you don't see a lot of missionaries coming through because I don't let them. 
because they get stopped at the doctrinal questionnaire. Sometimes it's not a decision that I've made. It's just they, they never fill it out. They see what's on there, and some of them have enough you know, sense to see where we, where we are, what we're, what we're trying to get across here, and they just stop. They don't, they don't fill it out, and so we never hear from them again. Well, the problem with most Christians is that they are just generic Christians. Don't really have any doctrine to stick to. Don't really understand very much doctrine. They don't think very much about doctrine. So if they don't have to think about it, it must be good. If it's not trying, if I don't have to spend any time with it, then that's okay with me. And uh, so you give them something else. If the doctrine that you give them is hard, they do have to think about it, and it is convicting to them, then they say, well, let's just move along. That, that, there's nothing to see there in that church, so let's, let's just keep on going. Brian Petro told me of a person uh, who said that what I say from the pulpit is often offensive. And he said, yes, and? I mean, is, isn't that what uh, the complaint was against Jesus? He's just offensive. Uh, in, in Matthew thirteen fifty seven, and they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. In Matthew fifteen twelve, Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou not that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? In Romans nine thirty three, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And you know who the rock of offense is? Jesus, people stumbled at him. He was offensive to them because of what he taught. You'll notice the Apostle Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, when he's arguing with the Judaizers, uh, he just said, you know something? If I take circumcision, if if I change the gospel to include circumcision, then I have removed the offense of the cross. In other words, the Jews will like that. They'll come alongside of that. They can accept that because I've removed the thing that offends them. We're not interested in removing the thing that offends people. The gospel always offends people. Uh, People that aren't saved get offended by the gospel. That's just the way that it is. You're not going to fix that. And if you try to fix that, you have to alter the gospel to do it. And we're just not going to do that. So Brian said, if we offend people, then we must be doing something right. So that tonight, if I started out by saying I may offend you, if I offended you, I guess maybe I was doing something right. It wasn't really my purpose, I don't think, to do that, though. But we are going to be offended by things that convict us. And rather than taking offense and sticking with it, change what we are. Comply to what the Scripture says. Be what the Bible says that we ought to be. So we're going to talk about this. There's a lot of bad doctrine that's out there. And quite frankly, bad doctrine offends me. So we're going to talk about it, and uh, we'll come back to the subject of doctrinal discernment. How does the Word of God, how do we think about that? How, how do we choose right and wrong in doctrinal areas? You need to be able to tell the difference. If you don't, it'll be, it'll be bad for you. Is it good doctrine or bad doctrine? We'll talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for your Word. And Lord, I do pray that in our moral decisions, uh, things that we do every day, that we would stop, that we would consider... Think very carefully about what we're doing so that we know, Lord, we're walking in the right path and doing what you would have us to do. Uh, Help us to be wise, discerning in the decisions that we make about our morality. And then, Lord, when we come to the doctrinal side of this, 
Um, this is perhaps even more difficult than deciding moral questions. So, Lord, we need wisdom in this. We need understanding from your word. We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to show us which way to go. And we truly do believe that when people are saved, that you do give them the ability to determine when a doctrine is good and when it's bad. If we're faithful to study your word, to pray and ask the questions that need to be asked, go to the word of God to try to find it, then we have full confidence that your word will open up to us the truth because your word is truth. So Lord, help us to look at that and to understand it in a better way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.